please, uh, if you've not done so already, take your Bibles and join me in the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts 19 and the first part of Acts 20. So we're going to finish 19 and start chapter 20 today, 1921, all the way through 2016. If you are using the blue Bibles in the seat backs in front of you, you can find our text on page 928. The title of our sermon is, I Must Also See Rome, and the keywords for our worshipers and training are Artemis, Encouragement, and Desire. Way back in Acts 13, the Apostle Paul set out from the church in Syrian Antioch on his first missionary journey with his friend Barnabas. And they returned to Antioch in Acts 14 and reported back how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles in places like Cyprus and Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. In Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas join the apostles in Jerusalem to help settle a dispute over the place of circumcision and law-keeping in order to be saved. And they concluded that we are saved through the grace of Jesus alone and not by our keeping of the law. In Acts 16-18, through we've been considering Paul's second missionary journey where he retread the familiar ground of his first journey but also made it further to uh, make disciples in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and in Corinth. Then he returned again to Antioch. He set out again at the end of Acts 18. And on his third missionary journey, we saw him come to Ephesus in Asia Minor. And today, in our passage, he's still in Ephesus. Uh, we're going to see a number of things. He's still in Ephesus for the first part of this passage, but then he, he will leave Ephesus about midway through, and, and we're going to see a number of things come together this morning um, in, in these verses. The overarching idea seems to be that Paul is headed out. He's headed for Jerusalem. He has plans and desires that extend beyond the places where he's been. He wants to make it to Jerusalem. Um, with the benevolence offering that he has been, um, he's mentioned in some of his epistles uh, that he's been collecting and, and encouraging the saints in these various locales to, to give an offering for those poverty-stricken saints in Judea. And so he wants to go and bring the offering through uh, to Jerusalem. But then he also wants to make it on to Rome. And as we know from the letter that he writes to the Romans, which likely occurs at some point during this passage, he, uh, he expresses a desire to go beyond Rome all the way to Spain. Now amidst these desires for travel, these desires to make it from one place to the next, to make it from Ephesus to Jerusalem to Rome to Spain, are two striking incidents Two striking interactions that he has. He narrowly escapes being killed in a riot in Ephesus and miraculously resuscitates a young man who had fallen to his death in Troas. So I want to read these verses, having sort of set them up. I'll read them and then give our outline. 
and then we'll get to work. So beginning in Acts 19, look with me at verse 21. Now after these events, that is the, the, the miracles and the, the doing away of the witchcraft in Ephesus, after these things, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who, had, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may uh, be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when he recognized that when they recognized he, that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis, and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen uh, with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through these regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews... As he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Phyrus, accompanied him, and the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. 
But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to the Metroaz, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over in him, bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But God, but going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assis, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met at Assis, we took him on board and went to Metalene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Okay, so the outline for this passage is going to be a little, a little more complicated than usual, but I think we can hang together. As I mentioned, there are, there are two main events that take place in this text. First, in verses 19, or chapter 19, verses 23 through 41, a riot breaks out, over Ephes, uh, breaks out in Ephesus over Paul's preaching. And then in chapter 27 through 12, uh, this young man or boy falls out of a window while Paul was preaching and dies, but then Paul raises him from the dead. So these two events then are connected and surrounded by Luke's comments regarding Paul's travel plans and desires to make it to Jerusalem and even on to Rome. So here's how we're going to do it. First, we're going to take up Paul's travel plans. That's uh, 19, 21 through 23, 21 through 6, and then 20, 13 through 16. So that's going to be our first point is Paul's travel plans. Second, we're going to consider the problems in Ephesus with the riot in chapter 19, 23 through 41. And then third, we'll consider the death and resuscitation of Eutychus in chapter 27 through 12. And just for fun, we're going to try to tie it all together with some concluding lessons and applications at the end. So three main points and then some lessons at the end. First, Paul's plans uh, for Jerusalem and beyond. We see this beginning in chapter 19 in verse 21. Paul has resolved, Luke tells us, he's resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. Now, it's really complicated for some of this to make any sense if you don't have sort of a picture of, uh, of the, the land masses and the seas and all that you know, in front of you. So, uh, as I've mentioned before, your Bibles likely have a map of Paul's travels at the back you can look at. Or you can look it up online later. But basically, the idea is that he he's, wants to head up this way from your perspective. He wants to head up from Ephesus this way to go through Macedonia and down into Achaia. And then he's going to sail on to Jerusalem. 
Um, and what Luke tells us, uh, or really quotes from Paul in chapter 24, 17, um, and what Paul writes in some of his other letters, as I mentioned, he wants to travel back through these places, Macedonia and Achaia, in order to collect an offering for the poverty-stricken Christians in Judea. But he's very clear, his interest uh, isn't primarily in getting back to Jerusalem. His interest is getting there to drop this offering off so that he can make it on to Rome. And he writes to the Corinthians in, the, in 1 Corinthians 16.9, he says, Regarding his stay in Ephesus, he says there was both great opportunity and adversity in Ephesus, and so he needed to stay there a while longer. And so this is what we see in verse 22, where he sends ahead Timothy and Erastus because he, he saw a great need for him to remain in Asia for a while. Um, and in his letter to the Corinthians, he tells them that he actually planned to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Uh, but um, things change, and he ends up trying to make it to Jerusalem before Pentecost. And so we'll, we'll come back to the, the riot, um, but that's the, the first bit of his travel plans, is that he, he wants to make it back through these regions, uh, through these cities where he had planted churches, collect an offering, encourage the saints, and make it on to Jerusalem. Well, after the, after the riot, Paul leaves Ephesus. Now we're in chapter 20. And he heads for Macedonia and then for Greece, which is just a Hellenized name for Achaia, for the region of Achaia. And so when you think about Macedonia, you're thinking of uh, Philippi, you're thinking of Thessalonica and Berea. Those three cities that we saw him go plant churches. He's wanting to go back through those regions. And when you hear Greece, you're thinking Athens and you're thinking Corinth. Um, and it's at this stay in Corinth, where he spends three months here, that he most likely writes the letter to the Romans, where he indicated his desire for Spain after he has come to them. So he spends the winter months in Corinth, and he's about to sail for Syria so that he can make it to Jerusalem, but he learns of a plot against him. This is most likely some kind of plan to kill him on board the ship and simply dump his body out at sea. And so instead of sailing to Syria, he heads back by way of Macedonia uh, again. And Luke gives us an account of those who are with Paul at this point in the opening verses of chapter 20. A Berean named um, Sopater, two Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, two from Derbe and Lystra, Gaius and Timothy, and two from Asia, Tychicus and uh, Trophimus. And at some point in this return journey now, leaving Corinth, heading back through Macedonia, he uh, is joined by Luke again. Remember, he had picked up Luke at Troas before, left him at Philippi. Well, now it seems that having come back through Philippi this time, Luke joins him. Because uh, you see in verse um, 5, the first person plural begins. Luke is writing, having experienced these things uh, himself. And so Luke joins him uh, there in, in Philippi and continues with him. Now in naming these men, Luke is surely intending more than merely recounting uh, just for the sake of record keeping, right? Uh, what he's doing in naming these men is showing the fruitfulness and the catholicity of Paul's missionary endeavors, right? He was, think, think with me, 
about what we've seen from the Apostle Paul. He was sent out in Acts 13 with two guys, Barnabas and John Mark. John Mark ended up abandoning him, and then Barnabas and John Mark set out on their own later. In his second missionary journey, Paul had Silas and Timothy and Luke with him. Well, now, well into his third missionary journey, he has eight men named with him. And they're all from these different regions. And so what we see in the naming of these men is that the gospel of God unites brothers and sisters together, not just from one place, but from all over. God was blessing Paul's ministry. He was expanding it. He was bringing more and more people in. And we can be greatly encouraged by seeing what the Lord was doing in Paul's life. And so at this point, at the end of this section, in verses 5 and 6, we see that, um, uh, that these men left for Troas, uh, and they left Paul and Luke behind in Philippi. And, um, and then Luke and Paul are to join them later at Troas after the days of unleavened bread. And so, again, we, we need to jump ahead. We'll come back to Eutychus in a bit. But after about a week in Troas, Paul heads out for Jerusalem. And you get the sense here that not only is Paul in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, but Luke seems to be in a hurry as well. He mentions uh, five places, Assis, Mytilene, Caius, Samus, and Miletus. And he includes that Paul is even purposefully sailing past Ephesus in order to get onto Jerusalem before Pentecost. Right? He surely figured that any stop there would lead to an extended stay that he was not prepared to make at this point. But he does stop in Miletus, and as we'll look at next week, Lord willing, he calls the elders from the church in Ephesus to meet him there for a final goodbye. And so that's Luke's accounting of Paul's travels. And I know that's tedious, and um, you didn't come here this morning for a geography lesson, but um, it's important to see this because what this has done is that it is, it's opened up the rest of Paul's life to us. It has set the trajectory of Paul's life. It has become his, uh, it has been solidified, if you will, as his undying mission and ambition to make it to Rome and beyond, as he says in Romans 15, to, to take the gospel where it has not been preached before. And so this is a helpful turning point for us as we consider the choices and the things that Paul does in the rest of the book of Acts. We need to see this drive that he has to go where the gospel has not been proclaimed. And yet today, what stands in our way are two things, a noxious riot and a needed resuscitation. So let's look at each of them in turn. So in the second place then, look with me at chapter 19, verses 21 through 41, where we see the problems that he faced in Asia. It was about the time that Paul had determined to go to Jerusalem that Luke tells us no little disturbance had arisen concerning the way. Just another term for Christians at the time. Luke names this man Demetrius, a silversmith who uh, made shrines uh, for Artemis. This man Demetrius gathered local craftsmen together with the workmen in similar trades, and they conspired against Paul. Now, 
He, he mentions uh, in verse 25 that Paul was having a, great, a greatly negative effect on their wealth. And yet, he couldn't simply play to their greed and say, hey guys, we're losing lots of money because of this guy. Mostly because it wouldn't play to the, to the crowd as a whole. The, the specific people in this um, you know, craftsman's guild might, might be for it, but that wouldn't be enough to oust Paul from Ephesus. He needed the whole city to be against him. And so what he did was he really needed these guys to have a fire lit under them, and so he persuades them that they should be fearful of three things that would be happening as a result of Paul's ministry. The first, he says, is that their trade of shrine-making would come into disrepute. Not only would they lose money, but they would, um, they would come into great shame because of Paul's ministry. Second, the temple of Artemis itself would be counted as nothing, and worst of all, Artemis herself would be deposed from her magnificence, and there would be worship stolen from her um, from among those in Asia, and he even says the whole world. And what do we find but that this attempt at persuasion was quite successful. Upon hearing these words, the, the group of workers, they were enraged, and they, they just kept crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And, and they filled the city with confusion and some kind of protest through the streets leading to the city theater. And they managed in the process to grab two of Paul's companions, Gaius and Aristarchus. And they bring them up front. And they're in this, this open-air theater. It, it rests at the foot of Mount Pion. It's nearly 500 feet in diameter. And it could accommodate at least 25 thousand people. And so this is a massive undertaking, a massive thing that's happening here in this city. And as they are, they've brought his, his companions forward, Paul, um, some have, have seen Paul's uh, choices here as a bit rash. He wants to enter in. Others have seen it as, you know, uh, bold courage in the face of of persecution, however you take his motivation, what he wants to do is, is enter in. He wants to, to get up front, in front of the people, but his, uh, the, the disciples that were with him and even some of the rulers of the province in Asia with whom he had become friendly, they urged him not to enter. And it's probably for the best because Luke paints a picture here of one, it's just utter confusion. The city is bewildered. Most of the protesters, they apparently have no idea why they're even there. It's, I mean, just think about, I mean, we, we have images surely come to your mind in our own society and culture in recent years, right? You uh, protest where you've got people with their picket signs, their banners, their t-shirts, their, their megaphones, their chants, and and there's no unified message. None of it makes sense. They, half of them are contradicting each other. It's just a mess. And, and so finally, the Jews set for this man, Alexander. And he attempts to speak to the crowd. Now, it seems likely that he's probably got a twofold intent in his message. He, one, wants to distance himself and the Jews from these Christian missionaries, while at the same time perhaps providing some... Uh, condemning evidence of sorts for these men. But, uh, unfortunate for him, he's recognized as a Jew, and so the, the crowd just begins to chant. 
Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours. And that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Some speaker gets invited to a college campus today, but because he doesn't hold the views that fit on the 3x5 index card of allowable opinion, he's shouted down, protested, and sometimes even prevented from speaking at all. And even those that do speak, right, you can hear the crowds of protesters shouting their slogans from outside the doors of the facility. This is, this is not a scene with which we are unfamiliar, sadly, in our day. And like our day, the Ephesians, lacking any sound argument against Paul, as paganism always does, all they can do is shout down anyone and everyone that attempts to speak. And ultimately, what they do is they just prevent rational, productive dialogue in their town. Now, ironically, if they had let Alexander speak, um, it, it almost certainly would have furthered their cause in doing away with these men. But they aren't thinking rationally, and so they shoot themselves in the foot and shout for the better part of two hours. And then somehow, Luke tells us, the town clerk, which... We hear town clerk and might think he's just someone who kind of works for the government. But he, in Ephesus, he would have been the elected head of the city executive. So he's an important guy. He, he's, very, he's able to very skillfully bring about a peaceful resolution to the matter, as surprising as that is. And he, he gives the crowd, once he manages to get their attention, he gives them several reasons to be quiet. And he says, don't, don't do anything rash here. The first reason was their widely accepted belief that the city of Ephesus was the legitimate keeper of the temple of Artemis and the sacred stone, uh, probably just a meteor that had fallen from the sky. Now, while these shared beliefs place the allegiance and faith of the people in the wrong things, it's, it's important that we recognize they are not worshiping the thin air. What I mean is that there's nothing in the teaching of the Bible that should demand of us that we deny the existence of a real, spiritual, call it demonic entity named Artemis that the Ephesians worshipped. Just because their beliefs were spiritually and morally wrong doesn't mean that they were necessarily factually wrong or incorrect. And so Ephesus, in a sense, belonged to Artemis. That's certainly what his assumption was, and that was his argument. So why worry about it? Well, he gives them a second reason that perhaps is even more compelling. He says you need to be careful because you don't actually have a legitimate charge against these men. For whatever they've said about Artemis, in his estimation... They didn't meet the legal requirements for the charges of sacrilege or blasphemy. He says, now look, if Demetrius and those with him have something against these men, that they can, some private offense that they need to deal with, they can settle it in the proper channels. The courts are open. Or, he says, if you want to actually bring formal charges against them, you can do that, but you need to wait. Uh, in verse 39, he says, you need to wait for the regular assembly and not attempt to oust them from the city through mob rule. The Romans were 
very eager to crack down on um, these democracies and their their uh, kind of mob rule mentality that they that they had, and so. Um, he says, look, we are inching closer and closer to being charged with rioting ourselves. And if that happens, we have no way to justify this commotion because ultimately they haven't done anything. So we need to be careful. And by the grace of God, this works. He dismisses the assembly and they seem to peacefully leave. So what do we learn from this? this riot in Ephesus. Well, it brings us back, but in a different way to a point that we've made over and over again through Acts. We live in embattled, we live in an embattled world. God's kingdom is advancing. God's kingdom cannot be conquered by the forces of darkness, and yet there is a real power that is possessed by the kingdom of darkness. Ephesus in some real way seems to have been held under the sway of the wicked Artemis. They were reduced to nothing more than raucous shouting in order to avoid the truth of the gospel or even basic conversation. And it's only by the grace of God that this man, this town clerk, was able to to bring the matter about peacefully. And so we live in an embattled world, but but we also see here through this example of this town clerk that God preserves his messenger, right? They weren't allowed to get Paul and tear him limb from limb. Like Gallio in Corinth who refused to hear the the Jews' charges against Paul, the town clerk coolly dismisses the cloud, reminding them that their charges are, well, bogus. Now we're not given... Even the um, amount of information about this town clerk as we, as we were the proconsul in, in Corinth to know anything about his character. But he seems certainly eager to avoid a riot, which is commendable. But what we do know as we've worked through this book is that God is absolutely operating behind the scenes here to make sure that Paul gets where he needs to go and more importantly, that the gospel continues to move about freely. Right? He survives in Ephesus, and as he gets on to Macedonia, what happens? But he gives the saints there much encouragement. If he had been killed in Ephesus, then the saints there would have been left discouraged, perhaps. And so the gospel is continuing outward. So that's our, our second heading then. We've got Paul, uh, Paul's travel plans. We've seen him in Ephesus. And now look with me in the third place, verses 7 to 12 of Acts 20, where we see the death and the resuscitation of this young man. Um, perhaps a, a, you know, a preteen or, or even a young teenager named Eutychus. Paul had arrived at Troas uh, in verse 6. And Luke tells us that they stayed there for seven days. And on the first day of the week, they had gathered together to break bread. And Paul spoke with them, um, surely concerning the kingdom of God. And this is, uh, it's a little, there's debate about how Luke is using the calendar here. But, it's, it's, uh, but I'm convinced he's referring to Sunday night um, when he's talking about the first day of the week. It's Sunday evening when they begin to meet. 
And so Paul is intending to leave the next morning on Monday. And so he has a lot to say. Um, he's, he's been with them a few days, but it's now time to leave, and so he wants to make his final remarks. And so as any good preacher, he talks and talks and talks. And he kept on talking. And around midnight, a young man named Eutychus fell asleep. If it could happen to Paul, it can happen to anyone. At least that's what I tell myself. So this man, Eutychus, he's, they're in this upper room. Uh, Luke tells us there's these candle, these oil uh, lamps that are lit, and so it would have been sort of hot and a little muggy and a little sweet aroma in the air and, and just the perfect recipe. It's late at night. They've probably eaten something for dinner, and Paul is going on. Just the perfect recipe for someone to take a nap. Well, Eutychus, making the, the proper precautions, taking the proper precautions, he sits by an open window. That will surely keep me awake, keep me refreshed. He's combating the warm, soothing smell of the oil lamps, and yet it isn't enough. Despite, and the, even the way that Luke writes is that you can tell that he's, he's fighting this, but he ends up falling asleep, and he falls out of the window. And then he was taken up dead, Luke tells us. Well, Paul runs downstairs, and he, he bends over, and he takes him up in his arms, and he says, don't, don't be alarmed, his life is in him. Now, admittedly, there's a bit of an ambiguity in the way that Luke records this. It's some of surmise that he's saying that he wasn't really dead, that when Paul got there, he says, hey, the kid's still alive, it's fine. Um, but Luke had, had already told us that he, he was, in fact, taken up dead. Luke, we know as a historian and a doctor, um, unlikely to, to make that kind of mistake. And so we, we need to see this. Paul is sort of like uh, uh, you know, the, the prophets of the Old Testament, Elijah, that he's, he's picking up this boy and, and, and God is bringing life back to him. And then astonishingly, after all of this, Paul heads back upstairs, he eats, and then gets back to business until daybreak. And then he departs. So Luke doesn't tell us a, a whole lot of details. There's lots of things that we might be curious about here. Um, the, the, the end result is, is comfort for, for these, uh, these folks here in Troas. And, and certainly Paul is a man on a mission. And so what do we learn from it then? Well, first I can promise you, I don't ever plan on preaching for six plus hours through the middle of the night. Um, you can rest easy there. And, and yet, while we can you know, joke about the length of a sermon and all of these things, it's true, on the one hand, a longer sermon is not always a better sermon. But one thing we learn here from Paul, he took the ministry of the Word seriously. Right? Whatever we make of Luke's description of Paul's lengthy orations, right? I just love, you know, Paul talked still longer. Whatever we make of that, Paul himself seems to have no sense that he should have spoken less. He has no, he gives no indication that he should have wrapped up more quickly. Immediately after confirming that Eutychus was doing fine, he heads back upstairs, he breaks bread, and then he keeps on 
going, possibly for, what, another six hours? It was midnight when this happened. He spoke, in verse 11, until daybreak. Now, it's unlikely that also this is a sermon. He's, it's, there's dialogue happening here. He's not talking for 12 hours straight, but he is teaching and encouraging them. And so they have this extended Bible study until the morning. But here's something else that we learn from this passage. God provides comfort to needy people. In this situation, it looked like raising Eutychus from the dead. In others, it looks like something else. Right, whether by human weakness or, or even negligence, the believers in Troas found themselves in a terribly sad situation. This young man had fallen to his death. But God, through Paul, had raised him from the dead. Now, also, not only does God provide comfort to needy people, but he, he provides us hope and he forces us to look beyond our present circumstances. Because Eutychus's resuscitation simply reminds us of our need for resurrection. Just like when Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead, when Eutychus is brought back from the dead, he still has to die again, as we all do. But we can take great comfort in knowing that God in Christ has conquered death. Bringing Eutychus back to life is a small picture of the hope that each and every Christian has. Death does not get the final say. What a needful word for us at a time like this. The weekend that we've had. There is hope. We don't always get them back moments later. In fact, in this life, we hardly ever do. But there is a day coming, brothers and sisters, when every pain and ache, every death, every sickness, every ailment, every hurt will be over and done. So what do we make of of this passage as a whole? Well, Paul's ambition to see the gospel advance is what propels him to Rome, or propels him to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. Right? Take it back to Acts 1.8. Jesus had promised that his kingdom would extend to the ends of the earth. And so Paul made it his ambition to play his part. When he gets to Caesarea in chapter 21, in verses 8 through 14, he tells the saints there, despite their warnings against going to Jerusalem, right? He's, they're like, brother, you don't need to go to Jerusalem. You're going to die there. Or really, I guess the warning they make to him is that he's going to be imprisoned. And so he tells them in response to that, not only am I prepared to be imprisoned in Jerusalem, 
I am prepared to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. Next week he says, we'll see something similar next week in um, chapter 20 when he gives his, his farewell to the Ephesian elders. He says that he does not count his life of any value nor as precious to himself if only he may finish his course and the ministry that he had received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, do we have that same kind of ambition as a church, as families, as individuals? Do you have that same desire to see Rinkin brought under the conscious experience of the Lordship of Christ? Do you desire to see Effingham County and the surrounding counties come to know and to love Jesus? Do we want to see the nations made happy in God? I believe wholeheartedly that we do. But let us be instructed by Paul's ambition here. Let us be instructed and empowered by God's Spirit through His Word in this passage today to recommit ourselves again and again and again to this great work of making disciples of all the nations. And lastly, this is the message of of this passage for us. Remember, difficulties arise. Maybe it's a riot. Maybe it's an unexpected death. Maybe it's discouragements and plots against you. Difficulties arise. And they are here to stay for a while. But God's kingdom shall never fail. Jesus tells His church, Fear not, little flock, for it is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He will preserve His messengers for His appointed ends. He will preserve His people for that to which He has called them. And so when our time comes to finish our race, to finish our course, to complete our ministry, to be imprisoned, or to get sick, or to die, let us rejoice that God has counted us worthy to suffer for the sake of our King. And let us entrust our very selves to Him as he welcomes us home with those ever-gracious words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well, amen.